0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so let's just do a little bit of review before we actually get to Matthew and let's talk about something we've talked about the past few weeks. And that is the synoptic issue. The prefix S-Y-N means what? Many. Many. Or together. What's optic mean? Views or eyes. So we're talking about the question, the synoptic question is, why are there four Gospels as opposed to just one? Why don't we just have one Gospel? Why is there Matthew, Mark, Mark? Luke, and John. And we said that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic gospels. They basically take a lot of the same information but give it to, it to us from a different perspective through different eyes. Now, do you remember last week, who is the main audience of Mark? Who's Mark writing to? Mark is writing to Gentiles. Okay, so Mark is writing to Gentiles. Where are they? They're in Rome. So are they anywhere close to Jerusalem? No, they're, are they Jews? Okay, and what are they undergoing in Rome? Persecution. Persecution. So, a lot of the themes in Mark are going to focus on Jesus having authority and Jesus being the sufferer, okay? And we looked at a lot of that last week. Mark's the shortest of the Gospels. It was probably written first, and it has that dubious ending that we talked about last week. So when we get to the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to see a lot of the same things in Matthew that we see in Mark, but Mark, Matthew's going to be longer, and Matthew's got a different audience and a different purpose. So let's talk about the authorship of Matthew. Matthew was a... Jew. He was one of the original of the 12 disciples. He was also known as who? Levi, the tax collector. So when Jesus appeared to him in Matthew 9, chapter 9, let's just turn there real quick. Matthew 9, chapter 9. This is where Jesus actually calls Matthew to follow him and be a disciple. And Matthew 9, 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, why in the world would Jesus or why in the world would Matthew write in the third person as opposed to the first? He's telling a story about Jesus as the main character, and so he's trying to be consistent with the fact that the story is not about him, it's about Jesus. But Matthew is one of the 12 disciples. He's called. He's a tax collector. He's one of the ones that has, he's an eyewitness. Remember? So what did we say was one of the validity or the validity issues of, of the gospels? It is that they were an eyewitness. Now let's talk, before we get to Matthew, Just is just popping in my head. Let's talk about a bit of news that came out today and yesterday in relationship to a little fragment from the Coptic Egyptians that's the size of a business card that basically says Jesus had a wife okay and it came about in about the what the 200s now based upon our first class what did we say about the canonization and the authority of scripture is this written from an eyewitness okay is it written close to the date between like in that first century okay do we have numerous copies of it We have a little business card fragment. Is it a theology that matches up with the rest of the Bible? Mm -hmm. Okay. So when this little Gnostic uh, bit of information comes out about Jesus being married, what can we say about it? We can reject it as hooey, right? (laughs) Because it's it's not. Yeah, it's probably a different Jesus. So, yeah. All right. Yeah, the yeah, a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different Jesus. All right. So let's talk. Let's go back to Matthew. Let's talk about the purpose of Matthew. What, if if Mark's purpose is to reach Gentile Christians in Rome who are being persecuted, Matthew's purpose is to reach Jewish people. Okay. So his purpose, his audience, is going to be a lot different. Okay. So these are people that are probably in Jerusalem or in the surrounding areas of Judea. They are Jewish. They would. Um, really need for the Old Testament proof to show that Jesus is the Messiah. So it's an apologetic manual to debate the Jews. Now, when I say an apologetic manual, what's an apologetic manual? It basically means, um, not that Matthew's making an apology, it comes from the Greek word apologion, which means So what Matthew's doing is he's basically writing a gospel to show to the Jews that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And he's going to use a lot of Old Testament quotations to prove that. And he's going to talk a lot about the kingdom of God, this whole issue of kingdom. Because what were the Jews expecting? They were expecting a king. What kind of king were they expecting? One that rules, that's going to come in on a white horse, is going to kick Rome out of power, is going to set up the new Jerusalem and is going to be like David and is going to rule with an iron fist and and everybody's going to be happy again. Is that the way Jesus came? He was born in a manger. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. His kingdom is not of this world. It's different. And so um, the Jews are going to have a really hard time understanding really what Jesus is all about. It's also a scholastic manual for the church leaders. Matthew is the only gospel that mentions the word church. Mark doesn't mention the word church. Matthew doesn't, I mean, Luke doesn't mention the word church. And John doesn't mean that the church is not there, but in Matthew, when he talks about church discipline, when you have an an issue with another brother and you want to go and confront them and then take another person, then take another person, then bring it before the entire church. And so... Um, And then it's also in there where Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, okay? So what are some characteristics of Matthew? It's conciseness, even though it's it's not as long as Luke. It's not as vivid and as colorful as Mark. Leaves out a lot of the details that Mark has. The whole issue is messianic fulfillment. Um, Eschatology, now that's a big word, eschatological does anybody want to know what eschatology means the end times it's from the Greek word eschaton which means end so we're going to talk about that towards the end of our end times here at the end of our lesson we're going to talk about the Olivet Discourse which is Matthew's chapter 24 and 25 so he deals with this whole discourse on the end times Okay. And we talk about ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. Again, Matthew is the only gospel to mention the word church. So Matthew is going to talk about end times, and Matthew is going to talk about how the church operates, which is very um, unusual or unique, not unusual, but unique to Matthew as opposed to the other gospel writers. And so um, it's, it's interesting, especially when you talk about the kingdom, when you talk about the end times, In this whole messianic fulfillment of Jesus being the king of the Jews. Jesus is viewed as a teacher or as a rabbi. He's he's shown as a rabbi. Why would that be important for Jewish people? They put a lot of stock in a rabbi. And so Jesus is portrayed as the rabbi, the teacher. He's also portrayed as who? The son of David. Why being the son of David is going to be an important thing? Who was the ultimate king of the Jews? David. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of all those what we call Davidic prophecies, okay? So again, the audience for Matthew is Jewish, 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 trying to prove Jesus is the Messiah using a lot of Old Testament quotations. It's all about Jesus as the Messiah to the Jews. Now, it doesn't mean that Matthew's it doesn't apply to us as Gentiles because obviously, you know, we would just be saying, okay we're not gonna, we're not going to read Matthew because we're not Jewish. The original purpose of Matthew was to to write to Gentile, I mean to Jews, but it has a broad appeal in teaching us about a lot of things. Okay, there's a skillful organization of Matthew. It's organized around five great sermons. You probably know one of the biggest sermons, right? What's the, the big sermon? the Sermon on the Mount. Mount? there's the Olivet discourse. There's these five great teaching discourses and then there's 10 miracles in chapters 8 and 9. Okay? So that's the background. Let's just actually dive into the gospel of Matthew. And what I want to show you before we get anywhere is I want to compare, because this is going to set us up for next week, okay, when we look at Luke, if we get through Luke. Matthew chapter 1 has a genealogy, okay? Question, why is the genealogy of Jesus important? especially if you have a Jewish audience. How come Mark doesn't start with a genealogy? Yeah, the prophecy. They want to be able to see that Jesus' lineage comes from the Old Testament. So who's going to be important? Who are the important people that they're going to want to have to link Jesus back to? Okay, David. Who else probably? Abraham. Okay, so let's look at Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of... Abraham. Okay, so two big guys in the Old Testament: David and Abraham. Who was Abraham? He was father Abraham and many sons. Many sons had father. Who was? He was the father of the twelve. He was the patriarch. He was the father of the Jewish people. Okay, he was called out by God. He was chosen to be the father of many nations, and and through him, Isaac, Jacob, and eventually the twelve tribes. Okay, so Jesus is the son of Abraham. Thus showing that Jesus is a true what? Jew. Okay, Jesus is also the son of David, showing what? Jesus is the true king. So right from the bat, Matthew's going to show us the genealogy of Jesus in terms of his messianic fulfillment to the Jewish people. Now, turn to Luke real quick. Just for grins next week, it'll give you a hint as as far as who Luke's audience is. But Luke has a genealogy, and his genealogy is in chapter 3. And look at verse 38. How far back does Luke's genealogy go all the way back to? It goes back to Adam. Was Adam a Jew? No. Adam was the first human. So Luke's gospel takes Jesus all the way back to the first man. So his purpose in writing, Luke's purpose in writing, is not going to be to Jewish people. It's going to be a universal appeal to all people, whereas Matthew's specifically writing in it to a Jewish audience to prove that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and the King. Okay? Now let's look at the Beatitudes back in Matthew. As I was a kid, I used to call them the beautitudes because I didn't know how to pronounce them. But the beatitudes, does anybody know what the word beatitude means or where it comes from? It's Latin. It's Latin for blessed. Okay. So let's talk about the Sermon on the Mount because the Sermon on the Mount is probably one of the most misunderstood parts of Jesus' teaching. If you get the Sermon on the Mount wrong, I believe you get the gospel wrong. Okay, so let's talk about the context. Context is everything. In Bible study, does anything just stand on its own? When you're reading something, you need to read what comes before it and what comes after it to set the context. Okay, so let's look at the context of Jesus' teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. So let's go back to chapter 4, verse 23. This is before chapter 5, which is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So what, what is, let's think about a sandwich here, okay? On one end of the sandwich, you've got Matthew 4.23, which Jesus is preaching what? The gospel of the kingdom. So Jesus is in fact preaching the gospel, the good news. And as we talked about last week, the gospel is not something we do. The gospel is something that has been done for us, okay? Now, let's go to 935. In 935... And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Does that sound almost like what we just heard? Okay, so you've got the gospel of the kingdom. You've got the gospel of the kingdom as the two bread, okay, the two pieces of bread in the sandwich. And what's in the middle? You've got the Sermon on the Mount and some other other, um, material. So before we even begin to understand the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's logical flow of thought, what is the Sermon on the Mount going to have to address? The gospel of the kingdom, okay? The the announcement of good news of the kingdom, okay? Now, let's talk about who the audience is. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 5 and look at verse 1. And audience, audience, audience is very important here. Chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, okay, so you got, who do we have first? Seeing the crowds. Now, we need to understand something about the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. There are going to be many crowds that are going to show up and hear Jesus, a lot of crowds. Everywhere Everywhere he goes, he's going to draw a crowd. Does it necessarily mean that if you're part of the crowd, you're truly a follower of Jesus? You could be a spectator, you could be an onlooker, you could just be checking things out. There's always the, the crowd. But then there's a subgroup that Jesus usually addresses. and let's look and see what it says here. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his who disciples came to him. And then what does it say in verse two? And he opened his mouth and taught, So who's Jesus teaching? His disciples. Now, is this the 12 disciples? Not necessarily. It includes the 12 disciples, but this is, these are people who have already entered into the kingdom by grace alone. Does that make sense? So this is a sermon to Christians, if we could say. It's a sermon to those who have already been saved by grace. That makes a huge difference. He's addressing those who are already in the kingdom. Okay? Is everybody following me? Because it's very important that we understand that. Okay? So, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay. So let's ask the question, what is the kingdom of heaven? I wrote up here, these are not things we must do in order to enter the kingdom, i.e. commands, but these are things that are already true about us, identity, since we have been graciously brought into the kingdom through salvation, okay? Is the gospel about what we are supposed to do to get into heaven? Or is the gospel announcement that's already been done for us? Now, what's the only qualification to get into the kingdom? What, what must we do? We must repent and believe. And some of you may disagree with me on this, but I believe that the Bible teaches your ability to repent and believe is given to you as a gift from God. So, that, so you even believing is a gift. Um, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 um, says, It's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. This is a gift of God. What's the gift of God? The faith to even believe is a gift. So these aren't things that you have to somehow do. It's not a list of, it's not a list of laws that you have to do. The Beatitudes, now, the, there's the entire sermon. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But the, the Beatitudes are not laws or commands that you have to do. Now, if you know anything about Greek, which you don't, but I'm going to tell you, there is not one command or imperative in the Beatitudes. They're all in what we call the indicative, okay? Now, let me write two words up here because this is going to help us on Sunday mornings as well. There are indicatives in the Bible and there are imperatives in the Bible. And if you get these two mixed up, you in big trouble. Indicatives, these are statements of fact, either about what God has done or about who you are. In other words, indicatives don't tell you to do anything. They are statements of either what's already true about you. Okay? So if we were to go to Ephesians chapter 1, when, God, when Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in this heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. Is that an indicative or is that an imperative? That's an indicative. God has what, done what? He's blessed us and he's made us something. He's made us children of God. An imperative, what's an imperative? It is a command. Are there commands in the Bible? Yes. Are there things we are supposed to do? Yes. Are there things that we're supposed to be? Yes. Which comes first, being or doing? Being comes before doing. Is doing important? You bet. But the only reason we can do is because of who we are. Now the beatitudes, be attitudes, think about it, be, these are attitudes of being, okay? These are what we are, this, these are statements of fact about what about who you are and what God has done for you. These are not things that you have to do in order to get saved. These are things that are already true of you if you are saved. Okay? So let's look at the beatitudes. Beatitudes, this is Latin for blessed. That's where we get the word beatitude. They all start with blessed are or blessed are, blessed are. That basically means fortunate or congratulations to you. You are favored due to God's sovereign grace. That's what the word means. So we could translate it, you're a recipient of God's sovereign grace. Da, 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 da. It's not something you do. It's something God says about you. You are blessed because God has blessed you in grace. Now, the structure of the Beatitudes, there are eight. Some argue there's nine, but the last one, there's really two. eight and. If you say there's nine, eight and nine are really combined together. It's about persecution. best are those when people persecute you. Now, here's the interesting structure. The first and the eighth are what we call in the present tense. Look at, look at the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Okay, what does it switch to? Future tense. Now, if you go to the last beatitude, look at verse verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sakes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first and the last beatitude have the same promise. Theirs is what? Is the kingdom of heaven. Not, you shall inherit the kingdom of heaven, but you have the kingdom of heaven. Now think about that for a moment. The middle two are in the future. So here's the tension of the Beatitudes. I'm not going to tell you what the, um, the theological term is it for it, but I'm just going to tell you it's called the already, not yet. Okay? All right, let me just ask you a question. Are you, have you already been saved? Yes. Will you be saved one day? Yes. yes. Are you being saved right now? Okay. I have been saved. I am in the process of being saved. One day I will fully be saved. Okay. So we are saved and we have heaven right now, but are we in heaven? We are saved and have God's grace, but do we have our glorified bodies in the new heaven and the new earth? No. So there's a, there's an already the fact that we're saved, but there's a not yet to the sense that there's, there's a future consummation. So these Beatitudes kind of have this tension that, we have these blessings now but there's also a future blessing coming we kind of have the first installment now but we'll get the full payment at the end does that make sense so these aren't things we necessarily have to wait for they're ours now but we kind of have to wait for them too does that make sense and the bible is full of these already not yet tensions okay These are blessings for us now, but only in the partial fulfillment. There's a future not yet aspect that will be ours in the future kingdom of the new heaven and the new earth. Now, here's another important reminder to remember. These are not personality traits. He's not giving a list of personality traits based upon your temperament. These are supernatural traits that come through grace. So when it talks about peacemakers, you know, just because a guy is a calm guy doesn't necessarily mean that he's a peacemaker these aren't natural to you. These are things that God grants to you in His grace when He saves you. Okay? He says says what He changes you to be in your new creation. Also, these are not ladders or steps of super-spirituality that are only reserved for an elite few. Okay, the Beatitudes aren't this list way up here that only the super-spiritual Christians get to That If you are a Christian saved by grace, these are true of you. Now, in degree... That's where we can maybe argue, but these are true of you, okay? All right, let's talk about the first one here. Blessed are what? The poor, right? What does it say? What does your Bible say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, what in the world does it mean to be poor in spirit? This word "poor" here doesn't mean like you're, you're, It doesn't mean that you're you know. You can't go to McDonald's this week, um, so you're going to go to, you know, you can't go to, you um, can't go to Bummer's, so you're going to go to McDonald's. It means spiritually bankrupt. You have nothing. You're poverty stricken. We don't understand this. The rest of the world does. When we went to India, we saw poverty. Isn't that right, Dave? We <laughs> We saw poverty. This means that we are spiritually bankrupt. We cannot save ourselves. We come to the end of ourselves. We see our dire need for grace. If this is true, is this true of you if you're saved? Have you come to realize that I have nothing to contribute to my salvation? I am spiritually bankrupt. I am dead in my sins. I can't contribute one iota to my salvation. Now, I'm going to be quoting a lot from Martin Lloyd-Jones because he has an excellent book called Studies in the Sermon on the Mount and just awesome stuff. So I'm going to give a quote from him here. This is how he defines it. It means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and of self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. It is nothing then that we can produce. It is nothing that we can do in ourselves. It is just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. A tremendous awareness of our nothingness. Is Is that true of a Christian that truly understands grace? Now, it doesn't mean that we wallow in that and say I'm nothing, right? But it means that before, what was I before? I was spiritually bankrupt. And even as a Christian, what does Jesus say in John 15? I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So, but what's the promise? You are blessed. Congratulations to you. You're a recipient of sovereign grace if you are spiritually bankrupt. Because what's the promise? You have the kingdom of heaven. Not you will receive the kingdom of heaven, you have the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me give you a quote from a famous hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Remember those first two lines, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Can we bring anything to Jesus? What's the one thing we bring? our spiritual poverty, our sin. We bring nothing. Nothing. We can't offer God anything. All we can do is cling to the cross. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. It's kind of like what Paul said in the Romans 7, 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul says, wretched man than I am. I know I'm wretched. I know I'm poor in spirit. The only answer is Christ. And then there's Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to who? The brokenhearted and saves who? The crushed in spirit. Those that realize they're absolutely needy for Christ, that they are nothing without Him. So what's the blessing or the promise? The way that the original language reads in the Greek theirs and the emphasis in the greek is theirs and theirs alone speaking again to christians theirs and theirs alone he's speaking to his disciples theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of god so let me ask the question has the kingdom of heaven come yes because jesus came preaching the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of heaven here right now Yes, because Jesus is ruling in the hearts of believers. Is the kingdom of heaven to come in the future? Yes. So, is, so how do we answer that? Is the kingdom here? Yes. Has the kingdom come? Yes. Will the kingdom get here? Yes. It's a, it's a win-win situation. What's the most important thing about the kingdom, though? Who is the king? Jesus is the king, and if you're part of his kingdom, the details really don't matter as long as that you're connected to the king. Because no matter where the kingdom goes, Christ is sovereign ruler over it. So, for example, let's just let's bring let's bring a, a situation that all of us um, are are maybe concerned about. We're forty forty eight days away from the elections. What happens if a person gets elected or reelected that we don't particularly care for? Does it affect our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven? Should we be fearful? Do we need to fret? Do we need to worry about any any nation that you're in? It doesn't matter if you're in America. We are citizens of what kingdom? The kings of heaven. We got one foot in. We got one foot in this earth and one foot in heaven. This is not our true home. We're linked to the King, and wherever the King reigns, he has his rights over the entire earth. And one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, so that's the first. Beatitude. Blessed are those, and there's a logic I want you to see the logical progression. It starts with an utter understanding of your desperate need for salvation. I'm spiritually bankrupt without Jesus. Then blessed are those who what? Mourn. Now is this a is this a personality just you know, is this like a personality thing where blessed are those that really cry a lot and get emotional at movies, you know, or they cry at weddings. What are they mourning over? They're mourning over their sin. Isaiah 61, 2 through 3, this is a prophecy that Jesus fulfills in Luke. Jesus has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Those that mourn over Their sin. Here's the logical progression of the Beatitudes. Starts with the desperate need, spiritual bankruptcy. Then it turns to mourning. Why do we mourn? We mourn over the fact that we are sinners and can't save ourselves and we mourn over the fact that we continue to sin and that we can bring nothing to God. We mourn. But what's the promise? It switches to future here. It's no longer present tense. They shall be comforted. Now, are we comforted now? Yes. But there is still the consummation of this comfort to come in the new heavens and the new earth. What does Revelation one four tell us? He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So, Does this mean, Christian, that you're to walk around sad all the time with a dour look on your face like, oh, man, I'm so bummed out because my life stinks? What does it mean to mourn? Do you grieve over your sin? Are you quick to confess? Do you see the need to repent? Are you bothered by the fact that your sin put Christ on the cross and then when you do sin, it's... It's it's an affront to a holy God. As a Christian, are you sensitive to the fact that you sin against God? Is there an awareness there? Okay. Blessed are the meek, for they shall what? Inherit the earth. Pay close attention to that. Notice again, these are conditions, not actions. We're not called upon to do anything. These are characteristics of who we are as children of the kingdom. Now here's an interesting statement about Moses. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. He struck the rock. He got angry. He had all those people following him, but the Bible says he was the most meek man. So does it mean that Moses was a doormat? To lead 3 million people in the wilderness, do you have to be a doormat? Do you got to have some backbone? So does, 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 does meek mean wimp? Does it mean doormat? Does it mean um, a wet noodle? No, here's what meek means. Let's look at the next thing. When you, is the first one not on there? It's not on the screen. It's on mine here. Let me read it to you. When you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy and mourn over your sin, this logically leads to a person who's meek. So when you, number one, mourn over, when you, number one, recognize your spiritual poverty and you mourn over your sin, it logically leads to a person who's meek because you don't trust in your own powers or abilities, but instead you find your identity in who? Christ. Not in power, not in status, not in trying to be something you're not. To be meek does not mean to be weak, a wet noodle or doormat. It means that we no longer strive so hard to protect our rights or defend ourselves in pride because we know there's nothing worth defending. That's a tough one. A meek person never pities or feels sorry for him or herself. It's an inner strength under control that trusts in the sovereignty of God. It's an inner strength under control that trusts in the sovereignty of God. What can man do to me? Nothing. What was that, Don? Keep that there for a minute. For a minute. <laughs> Being meek means that, in the grand scheme of things, who's your defender? Jesus. Do you have to put yourself out there, something that you're not, and try so hard to be this? Do you have to do power plays or politics or try to do all these things to get ahead? No, you trust in the sovereignty of God and realize that your identity comes through him and there's that strength. That, that puts you in a position of strength, under control, because what can man do to me? My identity is in Christ. I know that nothing in my hands I bring. I don't have anything in the first place. Everything I have is a gift from God, so I can live with the confidence to know that God is in control God is sovereign and that whatever happens, it's part of his will and I can have that solid assurance. Now, it doesn't mean that you're never going to fret or you're never going to worry or that you're, never gonna, you know, that you're just passive. It doesn't mean you're passive and don't do anything. It just means that it's an inner strength under control that trusts in the sovereignty of God. Now, what's the promise? What's the promise there? They shall inherit what? The earth. Now, there's an Old Testament promise in Psalms that says what? But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Okay? They shall inherit the land. In the Old Testament, what's the land? The promised land. How does Jesus change it? We will inherit, not the promised land, but we will inherit the entire earth in the new heavens and the new earth. Now think about that. If one day you're going to own the entire earth, you need to really worry about what happens here. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Jesus says, you, have, you will have rights over the entire earth one day. You will be co heirs with Christ, reigning and ruling over the new heavens and the new earth. Is he, are you getting warm, Russell? That doesn't work. So we'll just have to open some doors. Or you can go turn on the air back there. And, and the... Okay. Now, here's the um, let's, let's keep moving through this because there's th- we've only gone through three Beatitudes. And there's a logical progression here. Why aren't those showing up? Um, the first three Beatitudes focus on our desperate need. And we know what those are, even though the blanks aren't up there. What's the first one? We, we, we're spiritually bankrupt. The second one, we mourn. The third one, we're meek. Okay? These, these focus on our desperate need. Okay? Our identity comes from Christ and we are secure in Him. Now, we shift to the fourth beatitude, which focuses on what? How Christ satisfies that need. Because what's the fourth one? Blessed are those who what? Hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness, they shall be satisfied. Now, let's talk about what it means to hunger and thirst. Notice it is not a hunger and thirst for blessedness or happiness or comfort, or even our best life now. It's for righteousness. Now, we have to stop and ask, what is this righteousness that Jesus is talking about? Because there's two types of righteousness in the Bible. Okay? There's what we call... I'm going to use two different words here just to help you. There's what we call positional righteousness. And there's what we call progressive righteousness. This has a theological term under positional. We call this justification. Under progressive, we call this sanctification. And this involves both, okay? So, it involves justification, which is our permanent position. If you've trusted Christ for salvation, what's your permanent position? You are declared righteous on account of Christ and you are accepted on his behalf, and that can never be taken away from you. So positionally, you have a righteousness. Okay, You may not feel righteous, but positionally, securely, you are righteous. Okay, But there's also the progressive righteousness, which comes from sanctification, where you grow to be more and more holy. You grow to be more and more like Jesus. Okay, So it really involves both here, but since we're already... Since we're already saved, if if we assume we're already saved here in the Beatitudes, what type of righteousness do you think Jesus is talking about here? Is it a hungering for being justified or is it a hunger for being sanctified? It's a hunger for being sanctified. It's a hunger and thirst for being more and more like Jesus. That a true Christian has an insatiable hunger to be more and more like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of Christ. It's our deep desire. Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfied? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me hear that your soul may live and I will make my, with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. In the Old Testament, God says, it's almost as in the Old Testament, they had these traveling water salesmen because you're in a dry environment where there's no water. And so these water vendors would come into the town square and they'd you know, open up their, you know, their big you know, raincoat and they'd have their water things there. And they'd go, I've got water. So you'd come and you'd buy water. And so God comes as the ultimate water salesman and says, I've got water, but it's free. You're parched, you're thirsty. Come get free water from me. I will satisfy you. And Jesus said, you know, I am the, I am the bread of life. Um, you will no longer hunger or thirst. So here's the promise They shall be filled. God will supply that righteousness that we desperately seek in order to be free from the power of sin. When we long to be rid of our spiritual bankruptcy and when we mourn over our sin and when we are meek and and we're repenting and we hunger and thirst for righteousness, what does God do? He fills us with two types of righteousness. He's going to fill us with justification, the fact of being saved positionally, and He's going to fill us with progressive sanctification, being more like Jesus. So here's a promise from Jesus, this very, very wonderful promise. Is he going to make you more and more like himself? Yes. But what's the condition? The degree to which you hunger and thirst. Now, positionally, you're, you're, you're saved. This doesn't change. You, you're accepted before God. You're standing in heaven secure. Positional righteousness can't be taken away from you. But can you experience periods of more righteous living than less righteous living? Okay. So in that progressive sanctification, the hunger and thirst, the extent to which you hunger and thirst is the extent to which you'll be filled. So let me ask you a question. And I'm trying to think about this, and, and maybe it's something for you to think about. What does it really mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? How do you do that? I'm just going to throw it out there. Let you think about it. I don't have to answer it right now, but just what does it really mean to hunger and thirst for that? Okay? All right, now we move to the, la- the, the, the next three. Blessed are the who? Merciful. merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, we need to be real careful. This has been misinterpreted to mean that a Christian will only receive mercy from God in proportion to how merciful he or she is to others. Okay? It's like Karma. I saw Bill O'Reilly last night, and here's, I don't know if you watched it, but he said, be kind to people, because it's like karma. The more you're kind, the more stuff will come back to you. Jesus said it, Buddha said it, and Muhammad said it, or something like that. Or, and he was like talking about karma. Can this be true to the gospel? If you're generous, if you're merciful, then God will be merciful to you. Then would any of us be saved? Because how many of us have been perfectly merciful? So it can't, it can't be compatible with the gospel. It has to be in light of the fact that we're already saved and God's already shown us mercy. What does it really mean that they will receive mercy? Let's, let's kind of talk about what this Beatitude's about. The next three Beatitudes flow from being filled by God. They're the result of being filled or satisfied with righteousness. They're also related to the first three. Okay, if I could draw like a little diagram here to show you, what's the first one? What's What's the first Beatitude? Poor, right? What's the second one? Mourn. What's the third one? Meek. Okay, and we said the fourth one is the filling. Righteousness, you'll be filled. Okay, what's the fifth one? Merciful. What's the sixth one? Is it pure? And what's the seventh one? Peacemaker. Okay, I want you to see visually a comparison between... Number one and number five, number two and number six, and number three and number seven. Poor in spirit, merciful. When we are poor in spirit, we become merciful because what have we received? Mercy. When we mourn over our sin, what's our desire to be? Pure in heart. When we don't fight for our rights and meekness, we become what? Peacemakers. Okay, so there's a logical connection there. I don't know if you've ever seen that in the Beatitudes before. I was helped by that from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He kind of brought that out in his uh, studies in the Sermon on the Mount. I'd never seen that before, but it really makes sense when you look at it in that type of structure. Okay, being merciful. Now, what's the first one there? Okay, this means that we desire to relieve suffering and we want to see others receive the mercy we have received in Christ. We want to relieve suffering, both temporary and eternal suffering our desires to see people relieved of suffering. So here's what, it's, here's what being merciful is. Since I've been freed from my spiritual bankruptcy and God's wiped out my gravity of sin and I've been satisfied with righteousness, I in turn want others who are in prison to Satan and sin and self to be liberated by grace. I want other people to experience that mercy because I've been merciful. If I am not merciful, there's only one explanation. I've never understood the grace and mercy of God myself. You want to relieve suffering, whether that be temporary or that be eternal. What does that mean? What's temporary suffering? Hunger. People in poverty. People, people that are suffering, tempor- they're experiencing the sufferings that this world has to bring. What does it mean that you want to eliminate or alleviate eternal suffering? You want to make sure people don't go to hell. <laughs> or you want to... So ultimately, a merciful person says, I love people so much that I want the gospel to so penetrate them that they avoid hell. And I love people so much that I want their needs to be met here on earth. So I'm going to pour out mercy to them because I've received mercy from Christ. Does that make sense? And it comes from being poor in spirit. Okay, the next one. Blessed are the pure in heart. And what's the promise there? They shall what? See God. Okay? Now, in Psalm 24, 3-4, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So who can ascend to God's presence? Only a person with a pure heart. Does that... Do any of us qualify? That has been misinterpreted to say the more that you get yourself cleaned up, the more you can approach God. Do you know who that's talking about there? Jesus. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Jesus is the only one that can do that. He's the only one that has a pure heart. He's the only one that has clean hands. He's the only one that does what does not do what is false. He's the only one that can do that. So when you have a relationship with Jesus, His righteousness is credited to you, and so you can come into the presence as a pure child of God, not because you've stepped up the ladder to somehow get there, but because Christ has given that to you in grace. Now, Psalm 8611 kind of gives the idea here of what it means to be pure in heart. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart. Unite my heart to fear your name. What does it mean to unite my heart? Blessed are the pure in heart. What is God always after? The heart. God is always after the heart first. We often focus on externals like behavior modification and morality. Especially as parents, what do we want to see our kids do? If they just behaved, things would be good. Do we ever actually go after their hearts to say if their heart was changed and if God changed their heart, then the behavior would come? A transformed life comes from a transformed heart. Too many of us in Christian circles are really, really good about legalism and moralism and behaviorism, but God says that'll come when you have a right heart. So, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. A pure heart is an undivided heart that seeks the glory of Christ alone and Based upon what I preach Sunday, values, treasures, loves, glorifies, and submits to Him. If, you have, if you're pure in heart, what are you wanting to do? Live for the glory of Christ, not fill yourself with sin. You want to be, to be um, loving Christ with all, you, with all you are. What's the promise? We will see God. Okay, this is an already not yet. Anybody here seeing God? Was Moses allowed to see God? His backside glory. Most people that saw God in the Old Testament fell dead. Okay, so does this mean that God will magically appear to us? What does it mean to see God? Can we see God now? Yes and no. So let's talk about that. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. This is one of our key foundational verses for our sermon series on identity. So you've been looking at that over the past few weeks. What does 2 Corinthians 3.18 say? And we all with unveiled face beholding, what does the word beholding mean? Seeing the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Spirit who is the Lord. So how do we behold the glory of God? We look at Jesus. How do we see Jesus? In the Scriptures. So the more that we spend time searching the Scriptures for the glory of Christ, it will produce within us a pure heart that will be able to see more of Christ. Now, what's the not yet? Will we, get, will we one day see Christ face to face? Yes. What is 1 John 3, 1 through 3? Let's turn to 1 John 3, 1 through 3. Right now we can see Christ in the gospel, in the scriptures. We don't see him face to face, but we can see his glory through the scriptures. And when we pray, and when we hear the gospel, and when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and do a lot of means of grace type things, we can see Christ, but it's, as Paul says, it's through a glass dimly. But look at 1 John 3, 1 through 3. Oh, again, let's go back. The more we look at Jesus, the more we begin to look like Jesus. 1 John 3, 1. See, behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Doesn't that sound a lot like blessed the pure in heart, for they shall see God? One day we will see Jesus face to face. And right now, let me just ask you a question. If you fill your mind with things that are ungodly and things that are impure, are you going to see Jesus? Maybe bits and pieces, but if you don't fill yourself with things that are godly and things that are pure, you're not going to see the glory of Christ. And one day, the ultimate promise is we will see the glory of Christ face to face. And here's what Martin Lloyd Jones says again The fact that I know that I cannot ultimately purify and cleanse my heart in an absolute sense does not mean that I should walk in the gutters of life waiting for God to cleanse me. I must do everything I can to still know that it's not enough and that He must do it finally. You understand what he's saying there? Yeah, obviously, God purifies us, but we don't just like sit around and like do everything, walk in the gutters of life and like, you know, do everything that we can to fill our minds with 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 you know gross stuff and then expect God to to somehow you know work. We've got to we've got to put ourselves in a position to be pure, purifying our hearts and minds. All right, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Sons of God. This involves a strong desire to see people at peace with God first and then at peace with each other in healthy relationships. Can you have peace with each other if you don't have peace with Christ? It's first and foremost a peace with God, which the gospel talks about. It says we were once enemies of God, but through the gospel we've been brought into friendship with God. Now let's see how meekness and peacemaking works together. What did we say a meek person was? You don't care about your rights. You have a confident trust in God. You're not trying to put yourself out there. You have a confident trust in the sovereignty of God, This inner strength. A meek person who doesn't privately cling to rights and privileges is in a good position to be what? A peacemaker. Because you realize I have nothing to lose. Everything I've got is what God's given me, so I'm going to strive for peace. Now look at the awesome promise. We will be called sons of God. What a wonderful title of God's ownership on our lives as adopted children. We have a new identity. This is more of a title than it is a reality. The, the other one's are like, okay, you'll, you'll see God, you'll be blessed, you'll be satisfied, um, you will be comforted. This is more of what God makes you. This is a title. You will be sons of God. Are we sons of God or of God right now? Yes. Will that happen one day in its fullness? Yes, the already, not yet. Now, um, let's, for the sake of time, we won't turn to Ephesians 2, but I'll paraphrase it. Ephesians 2, 13 through 21, basically says Jesus is our peace and he's brought peace through his cross and he's broken down the dividing wall of hostilities, thus bringing Jew and Gentile together into one man. And so it just talks about how Christ is our peace and through the cross, he brings us together in relationship with him so that we can come to relationship together as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay? Now, Here's the last one that just kind of just shocks you because at this point, these all sound good, right? Oh, you know, I want to be comforted and I want to be the sons of God and I want to see God and I want to be satisfied. Then Jesus just drops this bomb next. You're like, where in the world did this come from? Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. okay. At this point, we really like the list, like I said, but how can we understand persecution being a blessing? Is persecution a blessing? Congratulations to you when you are persecuted. That doesn't sound right, Jesus. You, you, you got that wrong, Jesus. Say, come again, Jesus. Let's turn over to 1 Peter real quick. Because this truth is echoed. Do you think Peter heard this sermon? Yes, he was one of the disciples that was there, unless he was like zoning out, which the scripture doesn't say he zoned out. But hopefully he was—you know—he may have been sitting there taking notes with his little papyrus and stuff. But knowing Peter, like, are we going to have a test on this, Jesus? Uh, here we go. First Peter three fourteen. I'm in James. Let me turn to First Peter. First uh, Peter three fourteen. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, what did Jesus just say? You will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that's in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. Even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. It's the same thing Jesus said. Now turn over to chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And it begins with us. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So Peter reiterates Jesus' blessing on persecution. Now, the promise. Jesus moves back to the... um, moves back from the future tense to the present tense. He reiterates what he said in the first Beatitudes. It's reiterated. Theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of God. It's a present reality. In other words, we're not of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we can rest assured that God is in control, and we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, I talked about this a little bit before, but let's talk about it again. Indicatives come before Imperatives. How does Jesus start his sermon? Does he start with commands of what we're supposed to do or does he start with indicatives of who we are? He starts with who we are. In this sermon, Jesus, Jesus focuses first on identity, who we are as citizens of the kingdom, and then the rest of the sermon he moves on to how we act or how we do in the kingdom of heaven. So look at the rest of the, let's just look at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. It talks about you're the, you're the light of the, the salt of the earth, You're the lie of the world. It talks about anger, it talks about lust, it talks about a divorce, it talks about retaliation, it talks about loving enemies, giving to the needy, it talks about how you pray, how you fast, how you lay up treasures in heaven, how you don't judge others, um, how the golden rule, it talks about um, building your house on a rock, all of these things that we're supposed to do as citizens of the kingdom. Now, what would happen if Jesus just started with a bunch of law and said, okay, here's all the things you're supposed to do, now go do them and didn't start with the Beatitudes, what would that cause? Yeah, two huge issues. One, we would have what we would call inflated pride. Or we could call this legalism or moralism. Hey, okay, Jesus gave me the list, so I can go out in my own power and do the list. It's all about the list. It's all about living according to the list. I may not like to do it. I may not really want to do it. But it's all about the behavior of living for the list. And I can think I can do this in my own pride. I can get inflated. And I can look down on others that aren't doing as good as me. And I can be real prideful that I can do this. Okay? That's how some people would respond. The other one is deflated despair or guilt. Meaning, you want me to do what? I can't do that. And just thinking about it makes me feel despairing. I feel guilty. I can't do that. You want me to do what, Jesus? So some people are going to feel ultimately guilty and despairing like they can't do anything, and others are going to feel like they can do everything. Both of these are sinful, aren't they? Pride is sinful, and despair and guilt is sinful. So Jesus starts and says, now wait a minute. Before I even get to the law of what you're supposed to be doing, let me remind you of being comes before doing. It's who you are in Christ first. You are blessed. You have these things that are true about you. These are what are yours as a citizen of the kingdom. Get your identity first. Understand who you are. And then from that, you can begin to do these things, not in pride or despair, but in joy and in power. You do it in joy because you want to do these things to please God, not because you have to do them, you want to. And you do it in power because you know that you have the Holy Spirit, you've got the gospel, you're a new creation in Christ. And when you fail, guess what? Is it over? No, you're still forgiven. And, and that that sin was already paid for, and you just get right back up and go to the cross and say, Jesus gave me the power, and, and, it's, and it's there for you. And so Jesus preaches a pretty awesome sermon here, Starting with identity and then moving to obedience. And if you get those mixed up, you get got a lot of schizophrenic Christians that are running around either prideful or deflated. Or both, depending on the time of day. All right. Let's talk about kingdom parables now. I don't think we're going to finish, but we'll, we, we may finish. Kingdom parables. Let's go to Matthew chapter 13. These are called the kingdom parables. Parables of the kingdom. And remember what I said about parables a few weeks ago? There are different types of parables. What's a simile parable? Something is like something. The kingdom of heaven is like. And so a lot of these kingdom parables are simile parables. And you're very, very familiar with the very first kingdom parable. So Matthew 13, verse 1. This is, the, this, is the, this is the baseline for all other parables. That's why Jesus tells this one first. He goes, if you don't get this one, you're not going to get any of them. So here's the first parable. It's the parable of the sower. Okay? That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many sayings and parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, when the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered to them. This is very important. To you... nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this is, this people's hearts have grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are you, your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So why does Jesus say he speaks in parables? Who's going to hear? Those who have ears to hear. Now, doesn't everybody have ears? Who's going to hear and understand parables? There are going to be some that will hear and understand. There will be others that will walk away dumbfounded. And it will, be an act of, it will be like preaching judgment upon them because they won't understand. They'll be ever hearing but not understanding. Their hearts are dull. And so he says, to you have been given the secrets of the kingdom. Okay, to you. So if you are a follower of Christ, you are a Christian, will you understand the parables? They, most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not a believer in Jesus, the parables will be judgment to you. You won't understand them and in your misunderstanding of them it will, be an act of, it will be an act of judgment. Does that make sense? It's kind of scary. Now, what's the parable of the sower? Jesus goes on to explain what happens. Here's what happens when God's word goes out. What are the three types of soil? The first one is the soil that fell along the path, right? The second one fell among the rocks. The third fell among And what is the fourth one? Good. Okay. What's the one constant in all of these stories? The seed. There's soil. Yeah, there's soil, but it's not... The seed is consistent. What is the seed? The seed is the word of God. Now, let's read how Jesus interprets this parable for us because he's not going to leave us in the dark. This is the only parable he really interprets. A lot of them he just says... Like the first parable, he's going to tell he's like, okay, I'm going to debrief it for you. But from here on out, you're on your own because this parable is going to explain why some of you aren't going to get it, okay? Does that make sense? So here we go. And you're just not going to get it. Uh, Verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, has what, what has been sown in his heart. This was what was sown along the path. okay. What, is con- what, what does this path person do? What do they do? They hear, but what do they not? They don't understand, and then what happens? Satan comes and snatches it. Okay. Let's look at the next one. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word. Okay, they hear it right. And what does this person do? They immediately receive it with joy, yet it has what? No root. That's very, very important. There's no root. He endures for a while, but then what comes? Tribulation, persecution arise on account of the word. Immediately he falls away on on account of what? Trials, tribulations. Okay, let's look at the third one. As for what was sown among thorns, this one hears the word. Okay, so what's the same constant between all of these? They all hear it. This one says, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Okay, so riches, materialism, the world come and what? Choke out the word and it proves what? Um, Unfruitful. Okay, so this one's unfruitful. This one falls away. This one's snatched away. All of them hear. This guy doesn't understand. This guy... Receives it immediately, but there's no root, and this guy just hears it, but then the riches choke it out. Let's look at the fourth soil. was sown on good soil, this is the one who what? Hears. Now, at first glance, what's all the same? Now, what's the difference on the fourth one? They what? Understand, that's a difference there. And what's the other difference? He indeed bears... Fruits and yields, in one case, 100, another sixteen, another 30. Okay, let's talk about what this means. Does this mean that when you go share the gospel, there's going to be a 30% success rate or a 25% success rate on people that are going to? No. It means that who's the only person that's saved in this context? Number four is the only one that is saved. Why? They hear, they understand, they bear fruit. Okay, this guy hears and doesn't understand. Here's the scary one. Number two is the scary one. Why is number two the scary one? Because immediately they spring up and act like they're saved and talk like they're a Christian. But what's the problem? There is, there's no salvation. There's the appearance of salvation. And what's going to separate the the, the men from the boys, I guess you should say, or saved from lost is trials and tribulations. Yes. Don't you think that's been the danger of these mass altar calls that appeal to emotion? Yes. And, you know, you don't want to go to hell. Well, what person in their right mind says, yeah, I do? Yeah. You know, they're going to respond,
1: no, I don't want to go down.
0: Yeah. And, And it's just been such a disservice. George Whitfield, who was the greatest evangelist in Britain, who, who preached to a lot of people, thousands of people, um, and a lot of people got saved in his ministry, he, was very, he never pronounced anyone saved. And the reason why is he said, I've seen so many stony ground hearers. And so let me ask you a question. This is a, this is a little argument. I've got an opinion. Do we have the right to pronounce someone saved? If someone walks an aisle, goes forward, raises their hand, and says, I love Jesus, can we say they're a Christian? How many of you grew up in churches that did that? (laughs) Me. Southern Baptist churches are famous for having an altar call where somebody walks down, your pastor meets the person for the first time, prays a quick prayer. Do you want to go to heaven? Sure. Do you not want to go to hell? No. Okay, then say this prayer, and based upon that, you're born again, and you turn the person around to the audience and say, so-and-so has come forward today to ask Jesus into their heart. Who all wants to accept them into our fellowship? Say amen. Amen. All right, you're now a brother and sister in Christ, and then you'd never see that person again. You've just pronounced a person saved, told the congregation they were saved after a five-minute little prayer. Now, could they have been saved? Yes. But is the proof in the pudding, I guess. It's difficult because ultimately, what is a person's profession of faith? Their baptism. Well, their baptism and then their life. Um, so, Jesus is saying in this parable, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to hear the, the gospel, that are going to hear the words. Some are just going to flat out not understand, okay? You've been around people like that, right? There's going to be those that are excited and get it for a while, but then they they fall away. There's going to be those that hear it and, oh, this is kind of cool, but then, like, there's too many distractions and then there's no root. Then there's going to be those that hear and truly understand and bear fruit. Now, the fruit's going to be different, right? He says some 100, some 30, and what was the other one, some 60? Okay, that basically means that there's going to be some Christians, like Billy Graham, bear a lot of fruit, Okay? There's going to be other Christians that bear a little bit of fruit, but the point is you bear fruit, okay? And so Jesus says this is the basis for all of the parables. So there's going to be people, when Jesus goes out there and presents the gospel, when Jesus sows the seed of the word, when Jesus presents his word, there's going to be people that hear that don't hear, people that get the information but there's no understanding. And what's really going to prove that you truly understand is that you're going to hear, you're going to understand, and you're going to bear fruit. Now let's ask a question. I'll open this can of worms. No, I won't. Yes, I will. You want me to open it or not? Yeah. Well, it. <laughs> it depends on what it is. Oh gosh. Who does this? Who, who causes a person to under? Does a person here? Does a person here? Does a person here an understanding of themselves, or does it have to be something supernatural? Okay, God has to be the one to do what? Grant the understanding, open the eyes of their heart. God has to be the one to do that. Okay. So we understand that, right? It's God's doing. Okay. I guess it wasn't a big can of worms because you're all in agreement. All right, for the last 15 minutes, let's talk about end times. Are you ready? Oh, the wheat and the chaff is next. You can go back and read that. That's a scary one. Um, You know... At the end of the age, the wheat's going to be separated from the chaff, and but we don't know here. So you know, here in, in the church world, within the church, there are people that claim to be Christians and people that are really Christians, and that we don't know who those are until the end of the times, and then you know, we'll know who is truly. You know, Martin Luther said we'll be really surprised who is in heaven and who is not in heaven when we get there. All right, Matthew 24. We may not get through all this. We'll start it, but we may not get through it. Okay? This is where we get into some end times teaching. All right, Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. This is called the Olivet Discourse because he's on the Mount of Olives. Okay, so I wish I had a textbook here, a map to show you where the Mount of Olives is, but it's, um, the Mount of Olives is east of the Temple Mount. So here's the temple in Jerusalem. You cross the Kidron Brook here. And you kind of go up here to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then here's the Mount of Olives. So Jesus often hung out with his disciples in the Mount of Olives, right? That's where he got arrested. So they're on the Mount of Olives. They're overlooking where? They're looking over at the, the temple. Okay. So here's what, there's the setup. Verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came and pointed out to him the buildings of the temple but he answered them you see all these do you not truly i say to you there will not be left one here will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down and as he sat on the mount of olives the disciples came to him privately saying tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age okay the disciples asked two very important questions what are the questions when is this going to happen when is what going to happen what did jesus just say this temple is going to be destroyed. Okay, that's, the, that's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, I, look at the temple over here, guys. You see it? It's brick and mortar. One of these days, it's going to be rubble. Now, when did that happen? AD 70. Okay, the first question they ask is, okay, when's this going to happen, Jesus? The second question, they shift gears. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? It's a different question, right? We want to know what the sign is of your second coming, Jesus. And so Jesus gives them an answer. Are you ready? Signs. What was the question that they asked? What will be the sign single of your coming? Jesus is going to give small signs pointing up to the big sign. Okay. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. So what's the first? False Christs. Now here's the question you've got to ask yourself. Is Jesus talking about a period of time right before his second coming or are these things that have happened throughout the history of the world? And the answer is yes. (laughs) These are things that have happened throughout the history of the world. There's nothing new here. But... And when we get to Revelation, I'll talk about this. I do believe that right before Christ does come back, there's going to be a heightened, intense period of these types of things happening. Okay? Because when he talks about wars and rumors of wars, we're like, well, aren't there always wars going on? Aren't there always tornadoes and earthquakes? Haven't there always been false Christ? Wasn't there a guy in Miami, Florida named, um, he thought he was Jesus or thinks he's Jesus? He's a pastor of a church. He calls himself Jesus. He's got two uh, wives. He owns a casino. He's got 666 tattooed on his arm. And I saw a thing on 2020 where they actually sing praise songs to him. He sits up on the, he sits up on the chair and they sing praise songs to him as Jesus. So he's a false Christ. Number two, wars and rumors of wars. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Do not be alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be, what's the third one? Famines and earthquakes. Luke talks about tossing in the seas, tsunamis, hurricanes. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. They will deliver you up to tribulate, tribulation and put you to death. Okay, so persecution, martyrdom, apostasy, and you will be hated by all nations on my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many people astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Let's stop right there. Verse 14 has caused a lot of um, questions about missions. What does Jesus say? Let's look very carefully the gospel of the kingdom remember that's the whole point of Matthew he goes around preaching the gospel the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to who and then what does this mean that every single person on earth has to hear the gospel before jesus comes back no what is all the nations Panta, ta, ethne. All the people groups. We've talked about this many times over the past few years. How many people groups are in the world? Like about 16,000. How many are unreached people groups? About 8,000. What I believe this is, and this is my personal opinion, there's a lot of debate on this, my personal opinion is when God sovereignly ordains... That last people group to be penetrated with the gospel, that may signal the timetable. Now, it doesn't mean that every single person within that people group has to hear the gospel. It just means when it's preached as a testimony to all the people groups. So there's a lot of people groups right now that still haven't. So the question is well, can we, can we usher in the end times by how quickly we do missions? That's the big question. Some people believe we can do that. Or has God sovereignly got a timetable that it's, it's up to God? Yes. Yes and yes. The point is this. Here's the point. Here's the tension. Does God have a timetable of when he's going to bring it to an end? Yes. Does God tell us to preach the gospel to all nations? Yes. So we don't worry about this. We worry about this. What's the one thing we can control? Getting the gospel to the nations. God's going to bring it to a close in his timing. But our job is to get the gospel to the unreached people groups because it says the gospel will be preached as a testimony to all the nations doesn't mean every single person in a people group has to hear it or even become a Christian. It just means it has to be preached to that people group, assuming that one will, will trust Christ. Does that, does that make sense? So, for example, when we go to India among our, our tribal peoples, um, you know, we're praying for, for more believers there. And, and, and then there's, there's a lot of different people groups throughout India, throughout Asia, that have never heard the gospel. And so we're sending missionaries into those people groups so that they can hear the gospel. And then when they hear the gospel, they can spread it through their people group. So there's a difference between missions and evangelism. Evangelism is sharing the gospel so that people get saved. Missions is getting the gospel to a people group so that it can penetrate a people group and then they can spread it throughout that people group. Okay? So evangelism will never, be, will never finish evangelism, but missions can be accomplished. Okay? All right, we've got, what, seven minutes? Let's do it. Six minutes. Uh, Great tribulation. I'm not going to talk about that because there's so many things. The, the abomination that caused desolation. What I want to really get to is the sign. The sun, moon and stars are going to what 24:31. And he will, will, will. Sun Moon that's not 24:31. Um, oh 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign, the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. What's the sign? Okay. Okay. Go back up to verse 27. What has just happened in verse 29? Does that look like a universal blackout to you? Sun, moon, and stars? Okay, if there's a universal blackout and everything's dark, look at verse 27. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. What's gonna, we don't know exactly what it's going to be, but from this passage we can probably surmise, we can't be dogmatic, that there's going to be a universal blackout and then as lightning lights up the entire universe, that's the sign that Jesus is coming back in power and glory when the light of Christ penetrates the universal blackout and everybody sees him coming back on the four winds of heaven To gather his elect with great power and glory in a loud trumpet. Now we don't know, but all we can say is that the disciples ask when, and then later on Jesus doesn't answer him, says it's not for you to know when. But I think he does answer the sign. What will be the sign of your coming? Sun, moon, and stars will go to black, lightning will come, I will appear. That's the sign. So ultimately, the sign is Jesus <laughs> himself showing up. But it's interesting how it's universal blackout, bright, shining lightness, because Jesus is the light of the world. So consistent with it's what? consistent with to me, the darkness and the angel. You know, it just matches the passage. All right. We did get through Matthew. Next week, we'll go to Luke. And um, Luke's a totally different gospel. So let me pray for us. Unless there be any last questions. I kind of left you hanging on the second coming of Christ, but that's a good place to to... Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. Um, We may not know all the details. Like my dad says, he's a pan-millennialist. It's all going to pan out in the end. So there's all different viewpoints of how it's going to happen, but we do know that he will come back visibly, literally, to the earth to gather his people and it will be a glorious day so yippee as russell said I, i'm sure i'm sure you'll be saying that russell we'll be like where's russell oh listen for the yippee and then we'll get to heaven there's gonna be the yippee section of heaven where russell <laughs> sorry we're just picking on but that's good that's good that's good all right let's pray father thank you for um the book of matthew that we can learn about the beatitudes learn about parables and uh, jesus thank you that you're coming back in power and glory we can't wait for that day when you split the sky open, the darkness is overcome by the light, and you come back to gather your people, and that we get to experience the fullness of seeing you face to face and being with you forever. Right now, as we await that time, we want to continue to behold you. We want to look at you so that we can look more like you. So help us to be the people you've called us to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.